Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Have you ever heard something repeated so often that even though it wasn't true, you actually kind of believe that it's true? It's kind of stuck like as a mantra in your mind, kind of like this. Sticks and stones may, but is that true? Ask anybody married if that's true. Ask any child who looks back on something that was spoken over them by an adult, whether it was their parent or someone else of significant value in their life, a coach. You don't know how many grown men that I deal with, 40, 50, 60 years old, who are still trying to get over a phrase that was spoken to them by a meaningful person in their life growing up because sticks and stones do break your bones. They crush your spirit is actually what they do. So that's really not true. In my generation, we had a mantra in the 80s that that actually became a bumper sticker. That was the age of bumper stickers, 60 to 80s. Everything you believed was on a bumper sticker. And this one said, I'm spending my children's inheritance. How many remember that bumper sticker? BMWs were really popular at that time. They're making a comeback. And that was often one you would see. And we did. We did spend our children's inheritance. We did it financially. Do you know the average American only has $500 in their savings account? That means you're two blown out tires away from being broke. That means you're a transmission fluid leak away from being in a crisis. That means if your washer and dryer go out, you're in a bind. In the wealthiest nation in the history of mankind, we also did it spiritually. We were the first generation to not pass on our spiritual heritage to our children. We did it relationally. My generation sacrificed their marriage and their children on the altar of their own pursuit of pleasure, materially and sexually. And when I say that we did it spiritually, this is the first generation now, for the first time in history, less than 50% of people now attend church on a Sunday. First time in American history. Our grandparents called Sunday the Sabbath. Our parents called Sunday the Lord's Day. We call it the weekend. What would our children call it? My day off? But the mantra that has really, really mimicked this generation, it's one that's spoken often. It didn't make it to a bumper sticker and it didn't even make it into a tattoo or a nose ring. Ouch. But it is one that that you hear. And for the last 20 years, you hear it over and over and over. And do you know why you hear it? You hear it because in the 1990s, we began having something shoved down our throat in our country. And it was the privatization of of Christianity. It was, you can be a Christian, just don't bring your Bible to work. You you can be a Christian, just don't start a Bible study at work. Don't put a scripture on your desk. Don't play Christian music in your cubicle. 
They told us that we could have all of this, but it needed to be right here and that our faith needed to be ours and we need to have it in our own little prayer closet. And we went in the closet and everybody in the closet came out of the closet. They came out of the closet and they weren't private with what they believed. They weren't private in what they believed. As a matter of fact, they not only are not private, they're mad at you if you won't believe it and accept it. Actually, and I mean, you know this. You know that about every second or third week, I'm going to say something about if you're sexually immoral or living together. Am I not? You know that I'm going to say something about homosexuality. You know that, correct? Well, why, Pastor? Well, why, do you, why do you say that? Because they not only don't want us to speak any of God's truth in the world, they don't even want me to speak it in the church. Don't get mad if you go to Popeye's and get fried food. It's not Popeye's fault. Go to a different restaurant if you don't want fried food. That's all they serve. This is the word of Almighty God, and He alone decides what the rules are. He created you, He made you, you belong to Him, and you don't get to decide on your own what the new terms are for any lifestyle. People used to say this. This was the, this was the mantra. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor. I mean, I mean, I was born this way. Okay, but well, that was okay until they decided they were born both ways. And now it's not adultery, it's an open marriage. And now it's a palomory. It's a throuple. It's a threesome. It's a, no, can I tell you what it is? It's the fact that you cannot control your sexual urges and appetites and you want to keep creating new labels to justify where you are when the Bible calls it simply immorality and sin. I say that, and you've heard me say this over and over and over and over. This church is not a palace for the perfect. It is a hospital for the hurting. And in a hospital, by hospital, you go to get well. Sin is like leprosy. If you don't get healed, it starts spreading to other people. We want you to come here if you want to get healed. But you can't stay long if you continue holding on to the very thing that's destroyed you because it will start destroying other people around you. So this mantra of today, this bumper sticker written on the hearts of people is very simple. And you know it. You know it. How many of you have ever tried to talk to a loved one or a coworker about something they were doing that was wrong. Okay? And you got in the middle of telling them, and you're trying to share something with them that, that like they're doing that's destructive to them and other people that love them. And all of a sudden they get quiet. Face gets hard, and you hear them say, Don't you! Oh, say it loud. Don't you judge me. You're judging me. Stop judging me. 
Don't you judge me. You're judging. As a matter of fact, we know the Ten Commandments, but there's only one sin commandment of our generation, and that's telling people there is a sin. That's the sin. The only thing wrong in this generation is telling people that something they're doing is wrong. I want to say again, you can change the labels, you can change the titles, you can rearrange how they get, but the consequences of going against the way God created you to live is called sin, and it will still end up in the same place regardless of what title you put on it. So today, the title of my message is, Stop Judging Me. You see, the sinner's Bible only has two verses in it. You know that, right? People don't know anything about the Bible. Got two verses they know. Here's the first one. They're sitting in La Fonda's drinking a margarita going, well, Jesus drank wine, don't judge me. Yeah, he didn't drink a margarita. He drank wine. Jesus turned water into wine, not tequila. That was Mexicans that turned worms into tequila. My people. So is that really what Jesus said? Did Jesus really say that I should not judge people's attitudes or actions? Did people, Jesus really say I shouldn't judge who should be my best friend, who should be my children's best friend, who should handle my 401k, my financial future, where I should live, what neighborhood, what school I should put my children in? Did really Jesus say don't judge? By judge, I mean to evaluate what is right or wrong, a truth or a lie, who should be trusted and who should be shunned or stayed away from. Let's listen to the Apostle Paul. As he writes to a world very much like ours, it was Corinth. Say that with me, Corinth. In the book of Corinthians, Corinth was the capital of Rome, a providence of Achaia. It was situated about 40 miles west of Greece. Most people there followed a pagan god named Aphrodite. Worship in her temple included temple prostitutes and every type of gross sexual immorality of every sphere. Does that sound familiar? Our Aphrodite is the internet, social media, and its tsunami of sexual immorality and perversion. Joseph and I were talking about this, my son, the other day. Just so you know, I don't tell him to say, he keeps saying, Pastor Jacob has a grip. I say, just tell him my dad I don't want you to speak of me in the second person, Pastor Jacob said. I mean, just tell him. I mean, we got the same last name, and we're both kind of Mexicans, even though you have white on your driver's license. I am. <laughs> Would y'all like to hear that story? Yeah. We go about six years ago, seven years ago, I was going to help him get all kinds of, you know, when you don't pay your insurance, they flag your, your driver's license. He had more flags than the United Nations. And so... <laughs> We go to the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, which you don't want to go to. Okay, the one off Can Crow by the Mexican restaurant. The reason the restaurant's there is because you're going to wait and eat and have a meal while you're waiting in line. <laughs> so we're there and we wait and wait, and finally they go, Aranza. And so me and Joseph go over there, and the lady looks and she sees all these flags <laughs> on his thing. And I got, uh, I think I got Donald and Danielle to print up like 48 different things that we could bring to them that said, even though it didn't look like we had insurance, we actually did. The car was being sold, which is true. It's true. It's all true. And they don't do that. Just anybody, it was true. <laughs> Wanted to share that. And so 
<laughs> the lady goes, okay, what's your name? Joseph Ramsey goes, oh, Harry, let's move all these flags. Well, here's all the things that show that I've been in church. She goes, all right, uh, uh, what's your middle name? Haddon or Joseph Haddon? Okay, uh, race? He goes, white. I went, he's a Mexican. <laughs> Joseph goes, I'm white. I go, he's a Mexican. He goes, put white. I said, I am his father. And I'm paying for this. Put him down as an organ donor too. (laughs) That actually happened just like that. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth that came out of all of that immorality. Just as our world is being exposed to today. Here's what Joseph told me. He said, Daddy... he's, He's only 31. He said, when I was a kid, to lose your purity, you had to go and do something or you had to go and pursue something to see something that would rob you of your purity. He said, today, daddy, five, six, seven, and eight year olds are being robbed of their purity by what they see on social media. They're not giving up their purity. It's actually being taken away from them. How profound. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes and he says, is it actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you? Such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. That's the people that didn't grow up knowing about God's word. That a man has his father's wife? Are you puffed up? Shouldn't you rather be mourning that you've done such a thing that this deed must be taken away from among you? For I indeed is absent in body but present in spirit have already... As though I was there present, him who has done such a deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you gather together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know what Paul is saying? Take that person and pray that God kills them so they can die and at least go to heaven instead of being a Christian and die and living in sin. Is that judging? Hello? 1 Corinthians 15, 11, listen to what he says. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. He said, don't even have... A meal with someone who calls themselves a Christian, but they're living in immorality. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law of the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? One day, as God judges the world, we as the people of God are going to be right there beside him. And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Listen to this. Don't you know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? What is he saying? When Satan fell, one third of the angels fell with him. And they were created beings that chose to leave God even though they saw God. And one day we who haven't seen God but chose to follow him will stand up and judge them in eternity. Is Jesus telling us not to judge? Let's actually read what Jesus said. 
Because if it's quoted so often, judge not lest you be judged. How many of you know you can take a video clip of anything and make it sound like something if you take it out of context? So let's look at the context. Jesus is preaching what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It started in Matthew 5. He gets through, a large crowd leaves, and he continues the sermon after the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge with, it will be, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't see the plank, the big log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me first remove the speck from your eye. Let me first remove the speck from your eye and look at the plank that is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, now we're going to read it in the Amplified Version, which gives you the fullest meaning of the original language, which here is Greek. You're going to see that. Watch. Do not judge and, and now it makes sense, doesn't it? He's not talking just about judging. He's talking about being critical and condemning. Others unfairly with an attitude of self-righteousness and superiority, though assuming the office of a judge. So you will not be judged unfairly. For just as you hypocritically judge others when you are sinful and unrepentant, so you will be judged. And in accordance with the standard of measure used to pass out judgment, judgment will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the insignificant speck in your Brothers, I but do not notice and acknowledge the egregious log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, play actor, pretender. First, get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck from your brother's eye. What is Jesus teaching us? How is he teaching us to judge Let's not just take out this one clip because watch what else he says in Matthew chapter 7. In the same chapter, verse 20, he's talking about how we can know who we should be with or not be with. Therefore, you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, the one who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, my words, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the flood came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its collapse. This chapter begins with judge not lest you be judged. And then it tells us three ways to judge. What ways do we judge? Number one, Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. Say that by their fruit. How many of you know that when you want to look at what people are, Look at the people that are surrounding them. Look at the fruit of their lives. 
How many of you know if you want a financial planner, you're not going to go to four corners to a broke down trailer to get it? Do you know why? Because you realize if he can't help himself, how can he help? How can he help you? How can he help you? You'll know them by their fruit. Here's the second thing he says, whether the fruit's good or bad. You'll know them by their works or by their obedience. By their obedience. And then the final thing he says is, number three, you will know them by their duration. How do they stand through the storms of life? By their fruit, by their works of obedience, and do they stand the test of time? So what is Jesus telling us that we should not do in Matthew chapter 7? Number one, he's saying, don't criticize and condemn. Say that with me. Don't criticize and condemn. There is never a place for criticism in the life of a Christian. There's never a time where you are justified to be critical. And the next word explains it even better. Condemnation. Because of my background in Mexican food, I understand this word very well. Chili, con, you know what that means? Chili with cheese. Chili con carne, carne. Get it right, carne. You you know what that means? Chili with meat. Con is with. Con, damnation. You know why he said don't condemn anyone? When you condemn someone, you look at them and go, they're hopeless. They'll never change. They will never be any different. My child will never change. My husband, my maid, that person I work with, my boss, they will never, ever change. Listen to me carefully. The only person that's living that can never be forgiven and never change is Satan and his angels. As long as you are alive, you can be the thief on the cross. And the last thing you say is, Lord, have mercy on me and repent. And you can still go to heaven. I don't suggest you do that. Because life will be hell until you get to that point. It will. You know, the devil has a lot of happy young people, but not many happy old people. Have you noticed that? You know people that you've known since they were in high school and you went to the 20-year class reunion and they're living just like they did in high school and at 40, they look 60 and then you see godly people who at 60 look 40. (laughs) Just saying. He's saying don't condemn anyone. There is hope for anyone. As long as they're alive, the grace of God is there to reach them and to cleanse them and change them. Don't criticize and condemn. That's what he's saying. Here's the second thing he's saying. Others will measure you later the same way you measure them now. Dr. Scott Adams says this, criticism involves making the assumption that we would know better, be better, or do better in the same circumstances as somebody else. You should think, well, I'd never do that. Well, I'd never do that. How many of you remember Bill Clinton? How many remember Monica Lewinsky? Okay. How many remember Tiger Woods? 
When Bill Clinton got exposed and Tiger Woods got exposed, I was t- preaching to men and they go, Let me tell you, can you believe Tiger Woods? I mean, he had all that, his beautiful wife. He had it. Look what he did. Look at Bill Clinton. Look what he did. Look. And I look at them and go, wait, 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 wait a minute. I know your story. You are not the president of the United States and you are not a billionaire and you did bad as them. There is an element of humility that comes from the stunning reminder that we often fail to follow our own advice. You may clap. Here's such a powerful truth in this. Do you know who's writing and recording this story? Who is it? What book is this? Say it loud. It's Matthew. Say Matthew. Have any of you seen The Chosen? If you haven't seen The Chosen, download it. It's free and watch it. It's the most accurate thing of the Gospels. In The Chosen, Matthew is this short Jewish autistic genius. To become a tax collector, you have to disavow your Jewish heritage to become wealthy by taxing the people that are your people. So anywhere you went in town, when you were going out of town, there was a bridge and the tax collector would be there and he would look at what you have and he would assess it and you would have to pay him. And many of them would gouge you for more. If it was $2 you were supposed to give, they'd get four and they'd keep two themselves and give two to Rome. They were hated. While they were in their booth, they had a Roman guard protecting them. When they were outside of their booth, other Jews would walk up to them and go... And spit on them. All day long, Matthew sat there weighing stuff to charge people. And when he got out of his booth, everybody was weighing him and spitting on him. He's the one who wrote, do you forgive seven times? No, 70 times. He was the numbers guy. He was the numbers guy. He's the one that recorded that. We must remember that whatever we judge people by, Do you remember how you used to judge people that had kids before you had kids? I'd beat that child to death if that was my child. That child, let me tell you something, that child, look, your child has never even seen a picture of a belt. (laughs) Number three, you see the speck of something in someone else because there's a log of it inside of you. If you've ever sawn a piece of wood, uh, sawn a piece of wood, or, or been around someplace where they were sawing wood, or cutting something with a saw, all around you see all of these what specks. Here is what Jesus is saying. Remember, he was by trade a carpenter. You ever get a speck in your eye? You know what it does? It distorts everything you see. So if a speck distorts what you see, can you imagine what a log would do? What everybody else can see that's obvious, you can't see because you are blinded by the log in your own eye. Now here it is. Don't get mad at me. What aggravates you about other people? How many of you have a child that is just like you? Which child aggravates you the most? Do you know why? 
Because there's a lot of you. There's a log of you and what you see in a speck of them. That's why. Could it be that you despise them so much or you despise so much in others what is actually what you struggle with yourself? That's what Jesus is teaching us. If it really tweaks you, it's because it's in you too. If other people can't see it, but you go, hey, I I know them, boy, I could tell you, I could see right straight through them. How? Because it's in you. And then, finally, number four, and this is amazing to me. Jesus doesn't say, shut up. Don't make any evaluation. Pull the log out of your own eye and go home. I'll deal with them later. You know what he says? First, pull the log out of your eye. Then, go over and deal with the in their eye. Do you know how you can get somebody who's got a little something in them? You know how you can help them get it out and help them respect you? Here's a conversation. Maybe you want to have it with your children. Maybe you want to have it with a friend or a loved one. How how many of you here, it's hard for you to say no. By nature, you're people pleasers. You want to please people. You, you, don't, you don't want to hurt anybody by saying, I'm going to raise your hand. Come on now, be, be honest. Okay, some of you, just, you don't mean that. You're just raising your hand because you're a people pleaser anyways and you just want to raise your hand. So the, okay, so it's hard for you to say. So what you end up doing is you go around and you end up saying yes to everybody. But by saying yes to everybody, listen carefully. When you say yes to everyone knowing fully well that you can't do that, you hurt them worse than if you say no from the beginning and you're honest with them. So when you don't say no to the people you should say no to, you end up saying no to the people you shouldn't say no to. So maybe you're a people pleaser, okay? And you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Okay? So you just say yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll be there. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then by doing that, okay, you mean, well, but it's not going to happen. So in essence, whether you want to admit it or not, what are you doing? Hurting them and lying to them. You're hurting them and you're lying to them. How do you have that conversation? Here's the conversation. Hey, Jimmy, and if you're here and your name is Jimmy, I'm not specifically saying this to you, but if you are Jimmy, God put you here, so apparently it is for you. Hi, Jimmy. <laughs> so you go to Jimmy and you sit down with Jimmy and you go, hey, Jimmy, you, you know, when I was a kid, I, I just wanted to please my dad more than anything in the whole world. I, I did. So whatever he asked me to do, Jimmy, I just, I just said Yes. I didn't do a lot of it, but, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings, and I didn't want to tell him no, so I just kept saying yes. yes. And then when I got to school, teachers would ask me to do something, and I didn't really want to do it, but I didn't want to hurt their feelings, and I didn't know how to say no, so I just told them. And then I got into college, and you know, my first job, and 
people would ask me to do something and I didn't want to tell them no because I didn't want to disappoint them or hurt them. And so I just said, and then I got married. And then I got in my first job and career. You know what you're doing when you're saying that? You're pulling out that log. You're pulling out that plank. Why? Because in a minute, in vulnerability and humility, you're going to walk across that plank. And you're going to be able to reach over and get the speck out of their eye because you've laid down so much humility, transparency, and honesty in yourself. Can I tell you what's true? We all struggle with different areas of our lives. There's some of you that say yes to everybody. There's yes people, okay? And there's people like me. The answer is no. Just like the kids go, Dad, I can't know. Jacob Jr. was about four years old. We were at a gas station. He wants something. I said, no. He looked at me. He goes, why is the answer to everything always no? Okay, so, so listen. There's no people and there's yes people. And actually, neither one of us are completely right. But it's recognizing that and having the humility and vulnerability to be able to admit where you're at. To admit where you're at. That, that's what Jesus is telling people. Because I have a backlog of issues and you have a backlog of issues. You know why I can deal with the worst of people? Because I know the worst of me. I know the worst of me. I know without the grace of God and a renewed mind what I am capable of. I need God. I need this word. I need to be challenged. Now, it is to this dark world with no value system. And sometimes we end up thinking, you know what? The whole world's gone crazy. How many of you talk to your TV because the whole world's gone crazy? Raise your hand. Can I tell you this? It hasn't. Just the people holding the microphones have. And because we've been pushed into the closet and they came out of the closet and they're yelling and we're whispering, there are people that actually don't want me preaching this in our church. Every time I preach like this, we have people walk out. I'm sorry, but I'm not. This morning, I woke up to a text from my daughter, Amberly Grace. She's, we told y'all she's been in the, you, we prayed for her. She went to Poland and then she went to the Ukraine for eight days. So she was telling her mother all these different stories, but probably the most heart-wrenching one was when she got to the Ukraine at the, at the, at the, at the train station, there were fathers. Every, every man from 16 to 60 has to stay and fight. So fathers were sending their wives and their children off on trains, and they were hugging them for what could be the last time, weeping before they put them on a train. To leave. And then she told us about a lot of the atrocities that I won't even tell you about. This is a text I woke up to this morning and I was praying. It said, Daddy, I listened to one of your sermons from Sunday. 
Daddy, thank you for boldly preaching the word of God. Here's what she said. Daddy, I cried. Thank you. Look at me and listen carefully. Every mom and every daddy here, if that's the last words you hear, thank you for believing the word of God. Thank you for standing up. If that's the last words you hear when you die from your children, you will die wealthier than the wealthiest man or woman on earth. I want to say this. I love being your pastor. I love you supporting the unwavering, truth of the word of God. We always get news of people that are leaving our church. Recently, I heard, and it's not the first time, someone was leaving our church because their child was living an immoral lifestyle and they didn't feel like they'd be welcome here. Let me tell you this. God help any person in this church that would be shun or be ugly to anybody, I don't care what they look like or what they come in smelling like, if they came to church, they're at the right place and we're the place they need to be. My own son, Jacob Jr., was sitting up here on the front row six weeks ago. He is as lost as he could be. But that doesn't change what we believe about the word of God. He's not serving God. He's not living as we would want him to. That doesn't change the word of God. Today, I want to challenge you. The darker it gets out there, the brighter your light shines. When you play Christian music in your business that you own, when you have the word of God sitting on your desk, when you speak the word of God boldly, Speak it boldly. Thank you for standing with Michelle and I, Pastor Chris, Michelle, Pastor Blake, his beautiful wife, Joseph, Rochelle, as we stand to reach our community with the word. This is the only hope. There isn't another hope. There isn't another hope. It's this right here. Revival. So today, don't be harsh. Don't be judgmental and critical and condemning. Be loving, salt, light, but do not waver from the truth of God's word. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for the word of God. Today we thank you for the truth of your word that is unwavering and unchanging. It is the word that we will stand in front of one day. Jesus, when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ as every believer stands there, and unbelievers at the judgment seat of God, we will be judged by this word. Today, we surrender to it and to the author of it, the Father who loves the lost and a fallen world and has sent us out to be your voice, your hand, your feet, your light in the middle of darkness, your truth in the middle of lies. Bless them. Bless them. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. What do I do? Well, Jesus said, 
You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You say, Pastor, I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start. But what Jesus said in John chapter 3 himself was, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The most important question of your life is, have you been born again? So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're hearing you say, Pastor, I do. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That's why I'm here today. But I've never prayed to be born again. I want to begin my spiritual journey today. I want to turn from the way that I've been, and I want to turn to Christ to come live inside me to be born again. How can I do that? It's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer, and he died for your sin so you wouldn't have to die with your sin. And C, confess Christ as you turn away from sin through repentance to be born again. So on the count of three, If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. Would you pray for me today? That's what I want to do. I've never done that. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. Then when I get to three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand high and put it back down just so I will know who to pray for. One, God brought you here. Two, nothing is ever an accident. Everything leading to your life is led to this moment for you to come to know God and be born again. Three, if that's you, lift it high. I want to pray for you. One, two, three, four, five, six. Anywhere else? Seven. The last time I'm going to ask, Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these seven, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know it's what I need. If that's you, raise it and wave it at me. This last 10 seconds. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Okay. You can put your hand down. Church, now let's pray out loud together. All those that raised your hand, we're going to join you in this prayer to be born again. Pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe it on the cross. You took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name.